0: Hello and welcome to Architecture Insights. I'm your host, Tim Horton. Along with lawyers and doctors, architects are a regulated profession. That means there's rules in place for what that profession looks like. For architects, it means who can be an architect, who can offer an accredited course in architecture, and what happens when things go wrong. For a range of reasons, dating back to 2000, Architects' Acts in every state and territory are effectively consumer protection legislation. What that means is that not only are there standards, but there's also a standards watchdog. In New South Wales, that's the Architects' Registration Board. And the way it works is that an Act has the rules. It also has regulations and a schedule, which can set out those rules in more detail. And while the Act doesn't change, the regulations and the schedule can change more often. They can be swapped out if they need an update. That's precisely what happened in 2017 with a new Architects Regulation going live on the 1st of September 2017. On the 20th of September, the New South Wales Architects Registration Board held an industry briefing to highlight some of the changes that are part of the new Architects Regulation. My name is Tim Horton, I'm the Registrar of the Architects Registration Board. For those of you who don't know me, As I say, Matt Curl tonight is an apology, so we won't be hearing from him. But it is important to say that the board, in its um, constitution, in how it's made up, uh, has 11 board members, and one of them is a legal member. That legal member plays a fairly important role. Um, The legal member himself will say he plays a very important role, and he does. There are six architects on the board. There are five non-architects. The legal member is one of those who is not Uh, an architect, he does chair the Complaints Committee, Uh, and in matters like this on a change in the regulation, a change in the law as it it were, Matt Curl and the government architect Peter Pooley effectively were a two-person subcommittee of the board to steer through the changes to the regulation. And the way this works is important. So why did the regulation change? Regulations are a subset of the Act and Uh, An act can stay in place for a long time. The Architects Act was originally drafted in 1921, it was changed, it was repealed, and changed for a new act in 2003. So acts don't generally change. The regulations that sit underneath them do, and the schedules as well can. And they cycle every five years. So the important thing is why did the regulations change? Not because anybody thought it was a bright idea, but just because it was time. The 2012 regulation had run its course. So earlier, towards the end of 2016, we were approached by the department and also Parliamentary Council. Parliamentary Council are the ones who draft acts and regulations. And so there are now three parties I've just introduced into the conversation. One is Parliamentary Council, one is the Department of Finance and Services, in which cluster the board generally sits. So they're the three. So have we drafted the regulations? No, we haven't. We've advised the department who has worked with a parliamentary drafting team on what the final form would be. And if that's not a giant disclaimer, I don't know what is. So if you don't like it, don't blame us. Someone else wrote it. The important thing about what the board is doing at the moment is uh, the regulations represent part of a much larger body of work uh, seeking to open up the operation purpose Um, and functions of the board. One of the ways we do this, most recently, and again, as a prompt for tonight's discussion, we are podcasting tonight, voice recording, so that we can put it onto our SoundCloud site. This is a free service, non-subscriber, you need to download the app. And the point is that there are now um, 15 different um, talks from what it means for registration and what the pathways are to registration, as well as um, more expansive discussion with some of the international speakers we have at Sydney Architecture Festivals over time uh, and Byra Hadley Scholars, etc. So, what is important, I guess, in introducing the idea of the architects' regulations changing is we actually decided to leap into this as a, as a chance to push the board forward. Uh, part of that means needing to open and engage uh, with not only architects but members of the public as well. So we really do try to do that through different platforms. And so up on screen, what you've got is the logos for our Twitter site, SoundCloud, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and YouTube. Let's face it, most of you in the audience are on these platforms. The important thing is, I guess, I would plead with you to be part of these platforms. Not because I necessarily want you to tweet or to Instagram your sandwich from lunch, but we are increasingly putting so much information on this We know that you don't wake every morning to come to our board website. We would like to think so, but we are happy to come to you. And so one way to use social media is to just watch us and watch others, watch the Institute, watch government, um, watch your competitors, on social media. And so I really do implore you, and increasingly, I guess, we are beginning to observe that we are placing information that you need to know on these sites and I suspect in a few years time, as an aside, it will become, if not required, then certainly best practice. The other interesting thing in just setting the scene, given that we are talking about the architect's regulations, is that we actually think some of the work from the board's first ever strategic plan, which was endorsed last year for the period 2017 to 2020, actually directly addresses the work that we did with the regulations we are going to get to the point where we are now moving from paper to digital um, uh, election of um, architect members to the board. There are two architects on the board that are elected by architects. Uh, Last election that cost around $26,000 and around 25% of architects engaged with that. Um, What we see in moving to digital platforms is that hopefully that raises the level of engagement with architects, that more architects get involved and that there are, just forgive me for saying it, slightly more agile ways of dealing with things. Candidate descriptions might actually actually go online. That is being done in other jurisdictions and it's about time New South Wales did the same. So that is the shift to the digital is actually part of our strategic plan and that is also informing the work that we did with Parliamentary Council and the Department on the new regulations. So I'm just wanting to seat it into something that didn't just happen to us, but something we saw the chance to do something active about. Part of that, allow me to just explain what I mean by that. We invited many of you as part of your re-registration to A, do it online, which has been the case for the last five years anyway, but secondly, invited you to add information that you wish to make public. We will get to this about recording particulars in the register, as Parliamentary Council chose to phrase it. In essence, what we were saying is, from our lived experience, we get questions all the time through phone calls from prospective clients who want to know if John Smith is an architect or not. In the past, they've been able to go to the register, and we've given a fairly binary answer, yes or no. If they're there, they are. If they're not, they're not. The second question then comes soon after, which is, well, that's great, can you give me the contact details? Now, for privacy reasons and things like that, the answer has been no, but we'll get hold of the architect, and if the architect wishes to get hold of you, then they will make, oh, no. So, what we're trying to do is make everybody's life easier, and if you want somebody to see your website or your social media handle, increasingly, we're finding architects love to load up their Instagram handle because that's an example to the portfolio. If you want a phone number or a mobile number or whatever it is, then this is the place to do it. And if you don't want to, that's, that's fine. So you will find a number of architects, I don't know, around 70% have chosen not to add any public information on the register and therefore nothing is public beyond what was. So this is an example of us trying to open up the register for another reason as well. Allow me to offer probably I think the least known piece of dark matter around architects and the act. There is a small act in New South Wales called the Licensing and Registration Uniform Procedures Act. That actually makes it an offence and dictates an $1,100 fine should any architect fail to advise the board of a change in any contact details within a 14-day period. The challenge for us all is you won't read that in the Architects Act. You won't read that in the Code. You will read it if you read the entire Act and find that it makes reference to another Act, which is the Licensing and and Registration Uniform Procedures Act. The problem has been that we've not allowed you to change your own profile when it occurs to you. You're in Qantas club, you're at the side of the soccer field and you think, oh God, I've moved house, I've moved job, my mobile's changed, I should get onto it. Now, in the past and up until July, you would have the window of re-registration only to change your details on the register. And otherwise you'd have to call us, that's fine and we'd be happy to help. We're not there at 10 o'clock on a Saturday morning when you're at soccer. So we end up being the problem. So by now changing the way we create access to the register, we've removed, I hope, a barrier to you complying. We want to streamline everything that... um, every interaction you have with the board. That may include apps, etc. So that also means it needs to be seated in some type of regulatory framework because we are not a... um, we are not a dot com, we are not a PTYLTD, we are a statutory authority at the end of the day. And so our decisions are rightly challenged and our work needs to be uh, rightly seated in, if you like, law. The Architects Act, as I say, we should regard as fairly static. To change it requires um, uh, effectively agreement of both Houses of Parliament, etc. The Regulations is, is a little bit more flexible. It is something that can be presented by executive council to the governor and effectively assented into um, into into action. So the architects regulation is the one that's been updated a few times since the Act came in in 2003. And as I say, 2017 was just the year that it was time to do it all again. Um, So there are also schedules associated with the regulation. That's actually, of course, where the Code of Professional Conduct comes in. The code is both seated in the the regulation, you'll find the code in the regulation, but it's also pulled out because nobody wants to pull out the entire regulation for their client. So there's an excerpt, and that's called Schedule 2, which is the New South Wales Code of Professional Conduct. So what is in the regulation? If we go to the table of contents, there are four parts. The first, just like working with a builder, there's the preliminaries the bit that's kind of the stuff that makes it all happen. We're not really going to talk about that because that is what the name of the Act is, what the name of the regulation is, etc. The meet exists in part two to four and then I want to talk about the schedules. So, allow me to talk about part two, we've jumped into part two which deals with registration. So there are rules about uh, what an architect is, there are also rules on how an architect becomes. So here is, what is an acceptable qualification? If you have a diploma of building design from the Nepean TAFE and I want to call myself an architect, can I? No. Why not? Well, there's a procedure around that. So part two, clause four, actually deals with the qualifications. What's interesting about this one is what was in the uh, regulation was that it stipulated there shall be four universities and they shall be approved and should you have a degree in architecture from an approved course from those four you may go on to sit, you are effectively prerequisite to sit the exam. So that's rather interesting, Uh, in the next few weeks there will be an announcement about a fifth university that will offer a course of architecture in 2018. Now partly because we knew that but also partly because good practice now is not to prescribe but is to effectively rely on performance standards and architects know this in actual fact, the way it's been redrafted is that as long as it's a bachelor degree or master's degree in the discipline of architecture and it's accredited by the Architects Accreditation Council of Australia as the prescribed architectural qualifications that is the prerequisite to the pathway to registration. So the point here is that it's moved from being prescriptive, there shall be four universities, no one else is involved to uh, as long as it has met the accreditation standard. There is a very interesting discussion to be had tonight on how that accreditation standard is changing, etc. There's a new procedure in place. For those of you who are interested, um, there'll be a podcast on that as well in the next three or four weeks. So um, this one begins to deal with the procedures around how that accreditation then occurs. So this becomes really important. And the thing that I guess we want to pull out is the Australian and New Zealand Architecture Program Accreditation Procedure long name, worse, acronym, ANZIPAP, as we all like to call it, but that is the procedure that accredits a course in architecture. So, that is still there. So, can anyone become an architect? No. There are uh, rules and frameworks put around that. Um, I'll shortly ask if there are any questions and then we'll move to the next one. This is also then part of I see in this regulation and the change a natural culmination from two years of work to revise that procedure for accrediting courses in architecture. So it started in 2015, it has gone through and in October, really in a week or two, we will have the culmination of that work which is the procedures and the manuals and we are scheduling now four accreditation procedures in New South Wales because they fall due two interim reviews of the course of architecture in University of Sydney and UTS and two national visiting panels for the University of New South Wales and the University of Newcastle. So again, this is very interesting that there are quality standards built in across the profession from day one at architecture right through to the day you effectively retire. This procedure is all part of that. And again, we saw the chance to embed this new procedure, this approach, into the new regulations. Any questions on that? So, we move to Clause Five, which is which has been reasonably contentious. I want to put um, minds at ease. Part Five is about the particulars to be recorded in the register. So, again, this is uh, there are two registers we can think of. One is the back end. Allow me to call it that. This is the register the board has on your date of graduation the date that you um, uh, completed successfully completed the exam, the, day you got, uh, the date you got registered. Um, for the small, very small number, 0.3% of architects who find this, um, uh, whether where a complaint has been lodged against you and found. If a complaint has been lodged against you and dismissed, there is nothing in your record because it is nothing more than an allegation. That is our back end. That's what we have as a database. Then there is the public register. And the public register is what we're probably all familiar with looking up. We look up ourselves to see if we're on there because we've forgotten our registration number, etc. And pretty much it's name, rank and serial number on there. And this is, again, the thing that we wanted to move beyond. We found that it wasn't particularly helpful to consumers to get name, rank and serial number. So we asked in the last registration period, would you like to put details on the public register that others can see? We needed to have, if you like, a statutory framework behind us to do that. And so that has become built in. We now have, there is nothing stopping you from self-electing to have information made public. It helps as well to have a regulation say that we can. So that is what's happening in some ways with this Clause 5, particulars to be recorded on the register. There's some obvious stuff which has always been there, the registration number of the architect, the business address or the residential address. This has some very interesting implications for when we want to run data um, mapping on who architects are and, and where you come from. Um, when we map spatially where architects are, we find, not surprisingly, um, a concentration and cluster in a place called Surrey Hills. Uh, and we find that pretty much west of Ashfield, the numbers and density drops off. We also know that around 2% of registered architects operate within the 90-minute commute zone of Newcastle or Sydney CBD. So once you move out to Griffith and to Cowra and to Parks and etc, then there's really we're talking one or two. So this is interesting for us, not so much in Cowra, but in Sydney it's very hard for us to map, and we'd love to, anonymised I assure you, where architects live and where they work. And that for us gives an indication of whether consumers, members of the public, have access to the services that architects provide. But anyway, that's the information that we have on the register. Not all of it is made public. I guess the interesting thing uh, that has changed, if you like, and I think um, Kathleen will go through this, is this bit here, which is part four and five, which is that the board, the registrar, meaning as as a subservient functionary of the board, may publish all or part of the particulars recorded in the register on the board's website. We've had two architects contact us, alarmed that that may mean that all of that back-end register I was talking about may suddenly go public. I assure you that's not the intent. This is probably the point where I say we didn't draft this clause, somebody else did, and I hadn't seen until it was brought to my attention how it could be read. So what this is about is giving the permissions for the board to do really what I'm showing on screen, this is my entry on the board's register. This is what was public, my registration number, the category, was I practising or non-practising, which suburb do I choose to be registered in and what is the postcode of that suburb? One of those seems to be redundant, I would have thought, but anyway. So then the question is, what do I want to make public if people want to get in contact with me or find out who I am or learn more about me? The company name of the New South Wales Architects Registration Board is there, the board's website, and my Twitter and Instagram. I've chosen not to share my Facebook. I've chosen not to share my LinkedIn, for example. So, that one's up to you. That is what's intended to give us the authority, the top cover, as we sometimes say in government, to do this, to publish the particulars that you would like made public. I would encourage architects, particularly at the smaller end, a smaller practice end, smaller medium practice, Um, those in a senior position in, in practices to put their details and to make them public. We find that those who don't wish to are, on the whole, employees who are younger, who are more mobile and may wish to have, firstly, the address of registration to be their home address because they may... I don't want to shut down the system. ..because they may move around a lot and they may not associate with necessarily... practice that they happen to be with, they may be on contract. There are other things too. I need to say in the past the board has actually made the register available by sale. Um, That had every architect's name and address. Now that's something we no longer do. So there are a number of reasons for that. Personal safety, privacy, things like that. Marketing. In the past, the board has probably been guilty of, I think, providing marketers with the material they need to spam you. We don't do that anymore. So I'm asking you, let's cut a deal. We won't sell the register anymore, which we don't, so there's no deal to be made, I promise. We won't sell it. But we would like more of your information to be made public so that people can get in contact with you direct. The next bit Now, the the regulations are always a bit of a mixed bag because they're the bits that you come to that you realise the Act hasn't quite dealt with. So the next one uh, is about the the relevant educational institutions. And again, in some ways, this goes back to prescribing the four universities. And now the language is a lot more uh, broad and performance-based. Again, it is effectively a university that is classified as a university, i.e. that's not a TAFE. And secondly, that then means that they are universities that offer the bachelor or master's degree in the discipline of architecture so accredited by the Architects Accreditation Council of Australia. That's the change to that clause, or that's the new clause, away from being prescriptive. Then we have a flow-on effect of that. Because the regulations prescribed four universities, it actually meant that the academic member that sits on the board could only be appointed by four universities. What's more, the regulation even decided that they would dictate what the rotation was, that it would be the University of New South Wales and then it would be the University of Newcastle and then it would be the University of Sydney, then it would be UTS and then back to the top again. So you throw a fifth university in or a sixth or whatever, and again, there's an existential question to be had maybe over a glass of wine as to how many universities can be sustained, how many graduates can be sustained, etc. The regulation doesn't deal with that existential question. But what this is saying is that effectively... There can be a number of universities, and the specific number does not matter, but the academic member shall be appointed on a rotation basis between all of them. So that's again, that's the change to Clause 7. At the moment, the academic member for the board is Professor Gerard Reinmuth from UTS. So then we move from the regulation to the schedule. So Schedule 1 is about the election of architects to the board. Uh, there are, as I said, 11 members of the board, two of those, six of those are architects, two of those are elected. How are the others? Um, how do the others come to be on the board? One is a ministerial appointment. There's a very interesting backstory to that. that goes back to the hard-fought work at the time of getting the Act passed in Parliament. And the question was, should there be a majority of architects or a majority of non-architects? And the, um, the deal-breaker, or the um, thing that got it through was that the minister would appoint the sixth architect and that would be an architect the minister felt represented architects interests on the board. That at the moment is Dr Deborah Deering, and that person, and, and Deborah is the president. The other architect on the board is ex officio and that is the government architect, that's Peter Poulet. We have the academic member, we have two elected members, And we have the immediate past president of the Institute of Architects. Thank you, Catherine Loseby, who at the moment is Sean Carter. Thank you. They are the six. So two of those are elected. Uh, we did it by ballot paper. We, until the regulations were changed, we had to pay, I think it was something like $4,500 to put an ad in the Sydney Morning Herald, because that's what you did in the 19th century. And now what we've done is we've moved to more digital platforms so that we can uh, publish electronically. We can get in contact with you by email and provide you with... Um, a digital option on your uh, on your right to elect the two architect members of the board. That's again the change here. Then I think the thing that is probably of most immediate and daily interest to people is the changes to the code. Again that sits in schedule two of the regulations. So the code you are probably aware of has a number of different sections that deal with, again, the preliminaries and introduction a breach of the code may be considered to be unsatisfactory professional conduct. Secondly, the general practice standards that architects should act with integrity, for example. Interesting how many complaints we get that deal with that question of integrity. That work should be done and presented in a manner that is unambiguous, etc. Cetera, et cetera. We then move with dealings with clients into insurance cover into the continuing professional development. Again, that is embedded in the code, which is reflected in the regulations. We've got alternative dispute resolution, which is something that, again, has been beefed up and we will see shortly. Dealings with the public. This is where it's important to have registration numbers on things. I would regard 99% of site signs in New South Wales on building sites that architects have erected to be non-compliant. Did you know you need to have your registration number or your nominated architect's registration number on it? Um, And finally, dealings with other architects. So what happens when a job gets handed on and what are your duties? What's the duty of architect number one what's the duty of architect number two? So in the Code of Conduct, we see the two most common areas of concern, phone calls and generally flow on to complaints to be section six and section seven. Section six of the code is the information you should provide to prospective clients or to clients. What information can they expect and when can they expect it? It's very interesting. It talks about that um, the information provided by an architect, I'm I'm paraphrasing here, uh, will be such that you can make decisions as a client that are relevant to your project and that you understand the implications of those decisions, open brackets, particularly in relation to cost and time, Close brackets. So when there's a budget issue, that is the element of the code really that often the Complaints Committee will look to to say well what information was provided in relation to meeting the budget, the decisions uh, and the implications of those decisions. So section 6 and section 7 has real and practical effect. The other one is is section 7 and this is to do with client architect agreements. There's been an important change that the board asked to have in there and that was accepted. Anybody in this room who does work for a large developer will often find themselves inadvertently and through no fault of their own in breach of the code because not every element of Section 7, which is a requirement of a client agreement, is in an engagement contract by government nor large developers. So we felt it was important. In some ways, I think this is a strategic pivot for the Code, which recognises that small and large practice, full and partial services, are often a different dynamic. For the first time, the 2017 Code of Professional Conduct puts an important rider at the top of Section 7 and says, in effect, where the client architect agreement is drafted by or on behalf of the architect, the following applies. So if you write the agreement, They must be in there, those provisions must be in there in Section 7. If you are engaged by government and they've provided the contract, suddenly, for the first time, the Code realises that there was another decision maker in the room. I think this is really important and it's something we felt was important to have in there. It's an important proviso. We do recommend to anybody who deals with the Code not to read it on screen, having just said how much we love the digital world, we think it's too easy to screen up and to miss the detail. We say print it off, grab a cup of tea and a highlighter pen. And it's, the, it's, the, it's a fairly detailed and nuanced read that's important. Section 7, uh, I would encourage all of you to go through and read in, 20, in the 2017 version. Uh, in 2012, the code stated that architects should enter into a written agreement with the client before commencing and that there was an exception for that if it was urgent, in which case the agreement was needed within 10 business days. I'm amazed at how many complaints we find, so therefore complaints that are are proven, where client-art agreements are not in place. And we would say, how then do you know on what page you're starting? What happens when things go wrong, and all the stuff that you hear when you listen to plan cover and the rest. We get it. We see it. Also, the code listed uh, all of the issues that should be in the written agreement. Now, what's interesting is in the 2012 code, that required the cost payable under the agreement to accurately reflect the amount of work to be done for the client, including any variations. So that, in some ways, means a method for calculating uh, a fee on a variation. It does not mean you need to anticipate every variation. We have had that question asked. The other thing is clause 15 of the code required the architect to provide each client with a copy of the code before commencing the services. So what's changed? In 2017 the code now says that you've got to enter into a written agreement before the services are provided unless it is not reasonable to do so and in which case again you've got those 10 days. You've got section 7 and the elements again. Interestingly, seven subsection three, it requires the cost of the services to provide for any liabilities to pay employees over time. This is not something the board uh, had in its submission. We are aware of the nine submissions that the uh, department got, did include one that called for an extension, an expansion of the board's role, to effectively act, in my view, as a de facto corporate watchdog. And I think, arguably wisely, Parliamentary Council felt that that was the job of others and not the job of the board. However, I wonder if that was the origin point for this little bit that's been added to Section 7. So the fee that is in the agreement must include the cost to provide for any liabilities to pay employees overtime. Sometimes I think what's missing here are the industry standards, the industry guides um, that sit underneath this. So one of the things the board does, I can assure you, when we look at complaints, is to go back to acumen, the practice notes. What does industry say is reasonable to do when you're faced with this decision? It's interesting, partly because too many of the practice notes are six to seven years old. So the obligation to provide copies of the code has also changed. It's finally embracing the 21st century that happened a while ago, and now you can draw attention to it. It can be a web link. It can be somehow on the bottom of your email. It can be something that's embedded in something. It can be a page on your website, things like that. The other interesting thing is that the clause 17 of the code linked CPD to annual registration. There is a case that was successfully held against the board at the Administrative Decisions Tribunal that said the board could not withhold re-registration of an architect in a new financial year just because they had failed to do or failed to show CPD in the prior year. So what's interesting now is that it's just given us a greater dynamism, if you like, to request details of CPD progress at any time. This is important because in the last... 18 months, four architects have been found guilty of unsatisfactory professional conduct for failing to demonstrate CPD. It's ranged from a fine of somewhere between $500 for those who sent us effectively the shoebox of some receipts, uh, not linking them to the competencies, not saying whether it was formal or informal, and there's a f- arguably the board, f- well, the board found that there was a failure to demonstrate that they'd done it in accordance with the policies and procedures consistently enacted by the board since 2003. Then others who failed completely to do anything about it. The danger there is the argument you get, which is, I've been in practice 45 years, I've never had a complaint, therefore I know it all. Um, Now, we didn't make up the idea of CPD. In my view, CPD and PI were the two things that architects signed on to when, in 2003 the monopoly use of the title that I enjoy, and most of you, if not all, enjoy, is that CPD and PI would not only be the thing that we do, but also the thing that distinguishes an architect from others. That's an excerpt from the Board's Register of Disciplinary Actions that sits on the Board website and is renewed upon the Board finding a complaint. That website is changing. I'm going to wrap up shortly and hand over to Catherine Losby. And again, in hopefully October, you'll find the board changing, really just the interface. We've been really anxious that a lot of the work the board's doing should be evolutionary, not necessarily revolutionary. We see the website being the last thing we've got to rather than the first thing we did. It does mean a lot of the forms are going online, which means digital data entry as opposed to, I'm so sorry, for requiring you to download something, print it off, fill it in, scan it, email it to yourself, email it back to us, then it gets data entry our end manually. All that's changing and what you'll find is a quicker, more streamlined service from us. If you want to know more about the Architects Regulations 2017 version or if you want to brush up on what's in the Architects Act, you can do so by heading on to our website at architects.nsw.gov. Architecture Insights is a project of the New South Wales Architects Registration Board whose roles include to promote a better understanding of architecture in the community. We do this through podcasts, events, talks, tours and exhibitions. We run the Sydney Architecture Festival and you can follow us at architects.nsw.gov.au.